Well, man, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. My name is Brian. If I haven't been able to meet you yet, I'm the pastor here, and we're thrilled. Uh, love what we get to do every single Sunday. Love worshiping together, praying together, uh, giving space for God to move in our own personal lives. And then what we're about to do is open his word and allow his word to speak to us and challenge us and, and convict us and encourage us and to continue to move us forward as we grow in our faith. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, again, that song that we just sang, that is, that those words, those lyrics come out of Matthew chapter 7. And this whole section of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are all what we would now call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is extremely helpful for us to begin to get a picture of the life Jesus is calling us to. And so let me just kind of break down the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to preach through the whole Sermon on the Mount. I'll get you out of here at a decent time. Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there's three sections. The first section is, you might have even heard this phrase, the beatitude, or the word, the beatitudes. And this is Jesus painting a picture of what life looks like in his kingdom. And it looks very different than the life that we see out in our world. So he's saying, this is what life looks like if you follow me probably heard the phrase that we are called to love God and love others. That's right. That sounds great. What exactly does that mean? What exactly does that look like? Jesus begins to paint a picture of what life looks like in his kingdom, what it looks like to truly love God and love others. Then the next section of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving some very practical and very specific teachings covers a wide variety of topics, and you could read through that on your own this week. And then he gets to the last section, which was that song, basically. He tells that parable, which I read, and says, now everything that you've heard, you have a choice. Are you going to listen to these teachings of mine? Are you going to put them into practice? If so, you're going to be like this wise person that builds his house on rock. When the rains come, when the storms come, doesn't mean you're, prevent, you're protected from the storms even coming, but you're protected from things falling apart. If you hear these words and you don't put them into practice, Jesus says it's like you're a foolish person that's building something that won't last. You're building something that won't last through the storms. So I bring that up just so you have a little bit of context because we're going to focus solely on the Beatitudes, that first section. We're going to look at what does Jesus say? Here's what a life looks like within the kingdom of God. Here's a couple things you need to know about the Beatitudes. First of all, they are focused on more of who we are not just what we do. And you do need to separate those two just a little bit. They're obviously connected because who you are obviously comes out in actions. But Jesus is not trying to go through and just give a bunch of to-dos. He's not just giving a bunch of lists and here's what you have to do and make sure you check off all these boxes. He's trying to show, no, this is what a heart looks like. The person, these are more being than they are doing. And of course, our actions are going to see through that. In other words, here's a way to think through it is your faith, what Jesus is showing is your faith is who you are more than what you do, right? So if you were to even wrestle with the question, like what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or what does it mean to be a Christian? Our tendency is to, well, I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray and I give and I like, we begin to give a list of things we do, Jesus gives us a list of, no, this is who we are. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to be someone who lives in his kingdom. Can, so can we separate those just a little bit for our conversation? This is not a list of things you have to do. This is a picture of what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus. This is what it looks like to be in his kingdom. 
As we go through the Beatitudes, these are three things I'd love for you to be thinking about. Let me put them up here. Let me walk you through them. The first one is I would love by the end of our study through these Beatitudes for you to be able to say, I am amazed. We are looking at, at parts in scripture in the gospels where people heard Jesus or saw Jesus do something and they were amazed. They were in awe. They were gripped with wonder. We're gonna see that here as well. I would love for us to be able to say that. Man, Jesus, after hearing your teaching, after hearing your words, I am amazed at the love, grace, and goodness of God. You're gonna see those in the Beatitudes. Second one is, I want us to be amazed at how different life looks in the kingdom of God. I want us to almost have a little bit of a jaw drop of like, whoa, that is really different. That, that is completely different than what I see in the world. This is completely different than, than how I grew up. This is, this is totally different than, than my workplace and my work environment. I want us to just be amazed and in awe of just how different he calls us to be. And the last one is more of just a question to begin thinking about. Does Jesus' teachings describe me? Right? The Bible can be described as, as a mirror in some ways, where if we hold up Jesus' teachings here, and we have an honest conversation with ourselves of like, man, is, is this me? Does he describe me? Now, we're not perfect by any stretch, but it might give us a little bit of insight on where we are in our faith, where we are in our relationship with him. Does his teachings describe me or are there some areas that he wants to lean in on? Right? For honest, me included, we've all got areas. Let's be open to that. Again, allow the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts so that we can see where he wants us to grow. So we're gonna go through these uh, almost one at a time. Follow along with me. I think it'll be helpful for you to see these um, in your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I've got stacks of Bible out in the lobby. You can pick up your T-shirts, you can pick up your Bibles, pick up whatever you need out uh, in the lobby and that way you can have it throughout the week. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one, this sets up the scene. One day as he, Jesus saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Teach them. This is very important. Oftentimes we think as soon as we become a Christian, we just know all the right things and our lives are magically changed. Now there's no magic in this. Yes, our lives are absolutely transformed. The Holy Spirit does a work in our heart that we can never do on our own, but we still have a lot to learn. We still have to be taught. What we're gonna see Jesus explain and teach is not the way we normally think. It's not how we naturally act, right? As a parent, I almost said all of my job. I don't think that's totally accurate. I feel like all of my job and Becky's job is to just teach our kids to don't do what they think they should do. That's pretty much parenting in a nutshell, right? It's, well, whatever your kids want to do or think they should do or say, no, we're gonna teach you to do the opposite of that. It almost is what Jesus is gonna do here. I know you feel like doing this and I know you think about doing this and I know you want to do this, but let me show you who I want you to be. So he's gonna have to teach us. Would you be willing to let him teach you as he goes through it? All right, like I said, we're gonna go through these one at a time. Three things you need to know about the Beatitudes. The first one is the structure. The structure is gonna be similar throughout all of the Beatitudes. It all begins, depending on your translation, either God blesses those who, or blessed are those who. They all kind of begin in that way. Right? And the idea of blessing, just so you get it in your head, is this idea of, well, this is how God intended us to be. And when we're living out who we are intended to be, there's joy, happiness, and satisfaction that comes with that. So this is not some like 
reward system. If you're really good, then this is what you get out of it, and then God blesses you. No, this is, no, this is who I'm intended to be, and as I live out who God has called me to be, then of course, there's a full life associated with that. So the structure is important. You see God bless in the, front, in the front part, and then we see the result on the back part. They all have a result because of how we uh, are choosing to live and who we are, but then you also need to look at these as a whole, right? We're going to go through them one at a time just so we can explain them, but you can't just pick a, ooh, I like this one. I don't want to focus on the other ones. <laughs> those are too difficult. I don't really want those. You got to look at these as a, as a unit. So even though we're going to explain them one at a time, you've got to look at these as a whole, and it paints an entire picture. You can't have any of these missing. All right, here we go. Here's the first one. Jesus says, verse 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for, theirs, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. All right, do you see the structure? Right? It's God blesses those who... And then there's a, there's a result, well, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's talk about what this really means. What does it mean that God blesses those who are poor? We're not talking financially here. Your translation might even read poor in spirit. The idea here is when you are poor, you are in need. And spiritually speaking, we are absolutely in need. We need him to rescue us. We need him to save us. We cannot we cannot become righteous on our own. We cannot become godly on our own. We cannot get into heaven on our own. We need God to do the work. We need God to give. We need God to provide. And he's done that through his son, Jesus. So it begins, this is like the foundation piece of this, is I am poor. I need Jesus to rescue me. I need a savior because I cannot do this on my own. There's no amount of good works and good deeds that can get me into a, real, a right relationship with God. I am poor and in need. In other words, you ready? We are not enough. We are not enough. And man, that is a phrase that is very different than what our world says. Our world says, no, no, you are enough and you're good enough and you're smart enough and you can do whatever you want to do. False. <laughs> not at all. We need him. I am not enough. I need a savior. I need Jesus as my Savior. There's no other way to have a relationship with God except through Christ. In fact, Jesus says this later on in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, Jesus said this Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. In other words, you need Jesus. We have to have him. And what's the result of that? Blessed are those who are poor or poor in spirit, recognizing their need for him. Well, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, not because they earned it, not because they deserved it, not because they worked really hard or they tried really hard or they did all the things. It was because God gave it to them. Blessed are those who recognize their need for a savior. And then God gives them grace and gives them mercy and gives them the hope of eternal life for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For each of these, we're going to put these in an I am statement within a question that helps you apply this, right? Because based on the parable out of Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like a wise person. If you hear these words and don't put them into practice, you're like a foolish person. Let's be the wise people. You want to be a wise person today? Let's be wise. So an I am statement, right? Again, this is about who we are, not just what we do, but then a question to help us apply this to be wise. So here's the I am. I am saved. God blesses those who are poor, recognizing their need for him that says, I am saved. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot save myself. I need Jesus to do that work. And he did that on the cross. The question to help us with application, how can I depend more on Jesus? I'm not enough. I cannot do this on my own. 
I am weak, I am lacking, and I need him. So I need to trust him as I depend more and more on him. Very foundational to our faith. This is what it looks like to live within his kingdom, and it's very different than the world around us. Second one, Jesus says, verse four, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be, and say this word with me, they will be what? Comforted. I love this one. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, now Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, This applies across the board in every relationship and environment you're in. But does this just mean like God likes it when we're sad? Not at all. Again, there's a progression here. These build on each other. So I recognize that I'm poor in spirit and I am in need of a savior. Because of my sin, I need to be saved. So then the second part says, blessed are those who mourn. The idea is like, I recognize my sin. I recognize my faults. And that causes me to mourn. Like, God, I know you didn't desire this. And I know this isn't who you created me to be. And it almost causes this repentance in my heart. Because the opposite would be like, I sinned and I didn't care. Right? That's apathy. And here Jesus is saying, no, blessed are those who mourn over that broken relationship between us and God. Because that's what sin does. It breaks, it separates us from God. And we should mourn over that. It should cause a healthy level of mourning that leads us to repentance. Repentance is a big, scary church word, isn't it? Some of you are like, oh, I can't hear that word. Here's all it means. You ready? It means to go the other direction, right? If you are, if you are um, broken enough where you care enough about the sin that you have, you have done and the consequences of that sin, we can either be apathetic and say, I don't really care. I'm just going to keep doing what I want. Or it can cause me to mourn and like, oh, I did not want that to happen. My heart hurts that I've done this. And that moves me to go a different direction. That's all repentance is. So mourning, really what Jesus is getting is, blessed are those who take their sin seriously and and go in the other direction, begin to move in the other direction. But what was that last part? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be, what was the result you said? Comforted, right? So we don't just sit and wallow and, and, and grieve our sin, We're not constantly stricken with guilt and shame. Romans chapter eight, Paul speaks to this idea. Romans eight, verse one. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. You can keep reading through the rest. He has this great dialogue between sin and righteousness and what Jesus did, but that sums it up. That's why we experience comfort. When I recognize the depth of my sin and I recognize the brokenness of my sin and the consequences, it moves me to go the other direction and I find comfort because Jesus has taken that away. He doesn't keep holding my sin over me. He's not continuing to push guilt and shame on me. Instead, he's like, no, I've taken it away. There's no more condemnation. And that's where we find true comfort. Not because we are perfect, but because he has given us perfect grace even in the midst, but we recognize the depth and the brokenness of our sin. So here's the I am and then the application question. I am a sinner. We can say that within the kingdom of God. Yes, the uh, kingdom of God is made up of sinners. It's made up of sinners that recognize their sin and also move in the direction of Jesus. So I'm a sinner. And here's the question. What temptation am I fighting against? That's another way of saying, what am I turning away from? That would be that repentance idea. I'm a sinner, I recognize my sin, I'm aware of my sin, and I want to go in the way of righteousness, not the way of evil. So God, what can I be moving towards? We cannot do that on our own. Remember, it goes back to the first one. Blessed are those who recognize their need for him. So if you try to take care of your sins on your own, you've missed the first one. See how these build on each other? So blessed are those who recognize their need for him. Blessed are those who mourn, repent, recognize the depth and brokenness of their sin, but they find comfort in Jesus and his grace.
The third one, again, notice how these build. Verse five, God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole earth. Now, this is a principle we see throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, in the gospels, in the epistles, this idea of God really loves to lift up the humble. Those who practice humility, he loves to lift them up. But if somebody is being prideful and arrogant, he loves to humble them. The point is you will be humbled in one way or the other. Either you do it on your own or God will do it for you. He loves to look at the humble and say, no, let me exalt you. Those that are humbled will be exalted. Those that exalt themselves will be humbled. It's a, it's a biblical principle throughout the scriptures. But here, it's this idea of also, and depending on your translation, meek might even be the word, or even gentle. The idea behind humility is not just thinking of others more than you think of yourself. That's definitely part of it. It also has a lot to do with our posture with God, right? So the humble would say, God, I really think we should do it this way but I'm going to do it your way, right? The humble would say, God, I really think this should happen now, but I'm going to trust you and your timing. The opposite of that, and this is where we struggle, is, no, I want it this way and I want it now. And if it's not happening in our time frame and in the way that we want it done, we tend to force it to make it happen, right? We take things by force. Jesus is like, that's not how I intended you to live. That's not what life looks like in my kingdom, it's not you forcing your will and it's not you forcing your way. It's not you just working hard to make it happen. It's you humble yourself before God and you trust him. You trust his will. There's an element of surrender here that the humble would say, I'm surrendering my life before you, God. That also means I'm surrendering to your time frame. I'm surrendering to your purpose. I'm surrendering to your will. You know that whole phrase, right? Out of the Lord's Prayer, not my will, but your will. Right? That's a big piece of this. The humble are saying, it's not about me, it's all about you. And notice what then the result is. For they will, look, for they will inherit the whole earth. Now, this is different than the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we see a difference here. This is speaking most likely to more things that are physically here on earth. Right? So we're heirs to this. This is great. You're, you inherit this. You do not, once again, earn it. You most certainly don't deserve it. But when we humble ourselves, it's almost as God, through Jesus, is saying, yeah, I'm going to give you these things. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to help you. But I'm going to help you as an heir receiving an inheritance, not as somebody that's just worked really hard and made it happen themselves. You see the difference there? This is something that he is giving us, but it requires us to have a posture of humility. All right, so let's hit the I am on this one. I am a servant, right? That's what humility says, is I am a servant. The question for application is, what is being asked of me? Well, let me sit here just for a quick second. Don't just blow through this one. What is being asked of me? Because oftentimes when we get asked of something, whether that's we, we see what God is doing in his word and we feel like he's asking us to take these steps of faith or he's asking us to give in certain ways or he's asking us to serve in certain ways, or if somebody else is asking something of you, let's get real practical. Let's say your boss comes to you and asks you something. What is your immediate response? Don't say it out loud. But what is your immediate response? <laughs> That's going to give you a good indicator on where you're at with this one, right? We love to spiritualize, well, God, anything you ask, I'll do. What if your boss asks you at work? Spouses, what, when, what do you do? What goes through your head when your spouse asks something of you? What's your initial response here? 
Well, when your kids ask you, that's where I get convicted right there, man. Like when my kids ask me something, it is usually no. Then it's followed up by figure it out, which is then later figured out, which is later followed up by go ask someone else. That tends to be my progression as a parent. And so this has caused me a little conviction this week of like, I say I want to be a servant, but yeah, but that's to God. Not like my kids, not anybody else. We're just talking about my relationship with God, right? No, in the kingdom of God, that includes other people. So when somebody is asking something of you, is your immediate response, how can I help? How can I serve? Or is it my time is most important and this doesn't fit within my plans today? That gives us a good gauge on if Jesus' teachings describe us or not. All right, let's go to the next one. That one was too convicting. Let's go a little quicker. (laughs) Verse six, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. Uh, Just so we're on the same page, justice and righteousness, the original Greek word there, gets used interchangeably. Uh, And I say that because just in our world today, those words kind of, they mean whatever you want them to mean at times, and they can mean something different to different people. So righteousness and justice are used interchangeably. And the focus is not on fairness. The focus is on the relationship. So in other words, the way you could almost read this is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. That's the idea here. Hunger and thirst. I'm longing to be with God in a personal and meaningful way. But again, I can't do that on my own. Now, my humility helps with that. It creates a posture where where God and I can have an interaction and we can have a personal relationship, right? Humility is required to have a healthy relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss, with anybody, especially with God. So that humility helps with that. But God, I just desire to be with you. I long to know you. There's this idea of pursuing here. Psalms, we went through a series of Psalms throughout the, out the summer, and we see this all over Psalms as the psalmist write things like, as the deer pants for the water, so I long, my soul longs for you. Psalm 63 speaks to this, in a parched and weary land, my soul thirsts for you. That's speaking to the relationship, not the things in our life, but specifically to the relationship. We long, we desire to have a relationship with God that is right. Truly, righteousness, again, another more Christianese church word, we usually think righteous meaning the right things. That's half of it, and it's not even the most important half. Righteousness truly means right relationship. So when Jesus came, he gave us his righteousness so that we could stand rightly before God. Our sin has separated us from God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Our relationship with God can now be considered right, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has already done for us. So it's focused on the relationship. James chapter four, I love this passage. It speaks to this kind of, this, this hunger and thirsting of a relationship with God that's more personal. We're told this, come close to God and God will come close to you. Right? Do you see how that works? I desire to be closer to God. And then what does God do? He says, I want to be close to you too. And so I take a step towards God and then he takes a step and then I keep pursuing and then he keeps moving towards me. The important thing to note is he went first. He took the step first by sending Jesus to us. He went first. So now it's on us to hunger and thirst to continue to move towards him. Notice the result here. Those who hunger and thirst for for righteousness or for justice or for that right relationship, they will be satisfied. 
And we've talked about this idea before. We can spend so much of our lives trying to find things in this world to fully satisfy us. And we will never find it here on earth. We will not find it in a relationship with other people. We will not find it in finances and money because there's never enough. We will not find it in status. We will not find it in power or influence. We will not find it in a job or a career. We will not find it in anything or anyone else other than a deep, personal, meaningful relationship with Jesus. That's where we find satisfaction. So the I am, what does it look like to be in the kingdom of God as a follower of Jesus? I am devoted. Devoted. That's almost like husband-wife language, isn't it? I'm devoted to somebody. Devoted doesn't just mean I put up with you. Devoted doesn't just mean I've made a commitment to you. Devoted means I want to be with you and I want to know everything about you and I don't ever accomplish devoted. Like that's an everyday thing. I'm constantly devoted and I'm constantly seeking and pursuing. So a great question would be, what am I learning? Specifically in your relationship with God. What are you learning? What are you, what are you curious about? What do you want to know about him? So much of our devotion can be can be seen, evidence of it can be seen in how we're approaching God, but also how we're pursuing God. So keep learning, keep growing, keep asking him questions, keep digging into his word for truth, keep pursuing him, keep hunger, having a hunger and a thirst for him. That's where you will find your satisfaction. All right, we're halfway there. All you note-taking people are loving today so far. You're like, this is, there's a lot to write down. The rest of you are like, I'll catch up and watch it later. You'll get a nap in a second. There's a shift that's about to happen at this one, right? So he gets about halfway through and there's a shift. It's a subtle shift. The shift is going from specifically and only talking about our relationship with God, right? Remember, I'm poor, which means I need God. I mourn over the sin in my life and I'm comforted by God because of his grace, Right? We said, I'm humble before God and I'm trusting his will, his ways, his plans, not mine. All of that has to do with us and God. I'm hungry and thirsting after God. Now it shifts to our relationships with each other. Right? So still our relationship with God is, is paramount to getting us to this place. Because if you don't have a hunger and thirst for God, if you're not humble, if you're not mourning over your sin and you definitely don't have a relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then what we're going to talk through next is not even possible. This, what we read next, happens because of all the other aspects of our relationship with God, but it moves into our relationships with one another. So verse seven, God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. So now we start to talk about how we interact with other people within the kingdom of God. We've been able to see what it looks like for our relationship with God, but now it's how do we interact with one another because people are part of this. It's not just you and God. It's you, God, and a whole lot of other people. And so how do we interact with other people? Jesus is super clear. Be merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy, for then they will in return be shown mercy. Understand where that mercy comes from, though. That mercy doesn't just come out of us. We first received it, right? So everything that we've talked through already of being poor in spirit and mourning, humility and hunger and thirsting, we've received that. And so now we get to have the opportunity to give that back to other people. Paul shows this as well. Colossians chapter three. I use this passage in weddings all the time. It just seems like it's not a romantic picture of marriage and love, but it's a very real picture of love. Verse 13, make allowance 
for each other's faults. We might just stop right there. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We don't have perfect relationships with one another. So you can go into some, you can go into an interaction with somebody expecting perfection, which you will be sorely disappointed and frustrated and angry and bitter and all the things. Or we can say, no, I'm going to make, I know you're going to mess up ahead of time. So I'm going to go ahead and make allowance for, I'm going to give you room to not be perfect. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. That's what Jesus is, that's, that's where Paul's getting that from. When Paul wrote that, he says, nah, remember what Jesus said. Blessed are those who show mercy, but understand where that mercy came from. We receive it from Jesus, and we get to give that to other people, right? We receive it, and then we're able to give it. And what's great, what's the result of it? Those that show mercy, what? Are shown mercy in return from other people, from one another. You want to be forgiven? Start by forgiving. You want to receive mercy? Start by giving mercy. You want to receive grace? Start by showing grace. But understand, your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness that you give, it comes from Jesus first in your own personal life. And then we're able to show it to others. So what does this look like? I am forgiven. There's your I am statement. I am forgiven by Jesus. And what he did on the cross has taken my sins away and I have been given love unconditionally. I've been given grace that never ends. I've been given mercy and he continues to forgive me. I am forgiven. But there's a bigger principle here. It's not just about mercy and forgiveness, right? The biblical principle, and we'll see this throughout scriptures, is what, I've been, what have I been given that I need to then give? Right? What, what has God given me? He has given me forgiveness, so then I absolutely forgive others. He's given me mercy, so most certainly I show mercy. But what else has he given me? Oh, he's given me his time. What does it look like for me to show and give time to other people? He's given me kindness. What does it look like for me to give and show kindness? He's given me like resources and finances and blessings. Like I'm supposed to then use those to bless and give and love other people. What has God given you? What have you been given so that you can give to other people? Here's the next part. Again, we're talking about relationships next to us. Verse eight, God blesses those who, whose hearts are pure for they will see God. We need to talk about the idea of purity here because again, it's a word that can carry a whole lot of different meanings to it. Right? Just again, saying that word here, we could all come up with a little bit of a different definition or context of what pure or purity means. For the Jews that Jesus was most likely talking to in that day and that time and that culture, when they heard purity or pure, they were thinking of like a ritual purity, meaning we have kept the laws perfectly. And if we did not keep the laws, then we did all the ritual cleansing that we were supposed to do. And we've upheld everything and we're doing the right things. They would have probably gone to the list of to-dos, Remember, Jesus is not giving us things to do. He's telling us who we should be. So here's what, here's what purity means and what Jesus is talking about. Anybody have a coffee in here? I'm not going to take it. I'm just curious. Like, you got a coffee? All right. How many of you put stuff in your coffee this morning outside of coffee? Be honest. This is, yep, yep. So you put all that garbage and junk in your coffee this morning. You contaminated good coffee. 
You took the coffee, and it's good coffee here, y'all. I'm just saying, like, that's, not, that's not your typical Walmart coffee. We have good coffee here. Uh, that's mainly because of Trace, uh, but I'm a huge fan. So we get good coffee, and then you ruin it by putting all kinds of sugars and creamers, and some of you even put honey in your coffee. I don't even know what's wrong with you. That's a whole other issue that you put honey in it, and then you need all the different types of milks, and by the time you're done, you're like, that's not coffee. I don't even know what to call that. It's a concoction of all kinds of different things, right? There is pure coffee, and then there's contaminated coffee. That's what Jesus is getting at. So all of you contaminated coffee people, listen up. This is where you need to work on it. No, I'm just kidding, sort of, halfway kidding. But he's talking about our hearts with that, right? He's saying, is your heart solely focused on me, or have you put a bunch of other things in there? What else is in your heart? What else has your attention? What are your other desires? Is it just him? Or have we started to put some other things in there? And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have a pure heart. Not perfect. We're not talking perfection. We're talking about our priorities. Is it solely on God or not? And then notice what this next part uh, for the result of that. For they will see God. Jesus was very intentional on how he even used that result. Let me show you what I mean here. So, so much of what's in our heart uh, comes out in how we spend our time, what gets our focus, what gets our attention. So quick little exercise. Um, I want you to give me your full attention right here. So eyes, that's how I know you're giving me your full attention. Now keep full attention here, and I want you to give the person behind you attention as well. Ah, no, you, don't turn around. No, you've, you've given half attention at that point. Right, so give me your full attention, but give somebody behind you attention as well. Right, it's not possible. You, you can't do this. It's one or the other. It's attention here or attention there. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, make sure I've got your full attention. Now, does that mean we have other relationships? Of course, but who's the most important one? Does that mean we have other people in our lives? Absolutely. Who gets our attention? Does that mean we have other things that we do in life? Absolutely. But as we go through the rest of our lives, who has our heart? Who has our heart? So we would say, I am dedicated. I am dedicated. I am focused. I am giving my attention to God. He has my whole heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not a good chunk of your heart. Not more than 50% of your heart. Not some on this day, some on that day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your mind, all your soul, we are dedicated to him. The question is, are my priorities right? Are they right? It starts to get a little convicting there, doesn't it? And I've put some of these other relationships ahead of God. I've put these other things ahead of God. I've allowed other things in my heart and it's no longer a pure heart. It's sure, Jesus is still part of it, but what else is as well? A couple more. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. This is the idea of a peacemaker, not the peaceful. And here's how I'd help you understand this. Jesus knows that we're going to have conflicts in our relationships. We're going to have troubles. We're going to have problems. So he speaks to it, even within the kingdom. Even within the kingdom of God, we will have conflicts with one another. Three types of people when it comes to conflict. There's the person that makes it worse. They're throwing gas on the fire, so to speak, right? There's those people. Then you have people that are just like, ooh. I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to take an Instagram picture of it and post about it later. 
That's the bystander. I'm just watching. I'm just seeing it. Um, I'm eventually going to back away. I don't want to have anything to do with this. That's the bystander. They don't make it worse, but they're not helpful. The third person is the peacemaker that goes into the conflict with gallons of water and begins to help the situation. Jesus modeled this. He was our peacemaker. He came to make peace between us and God, to make our relationship right once again. Notice what it cost Jesus, his life. Now we're talking sacrifice as part of this. To be a peacemaker, it's going to require sacrifice. If you always wanna be right, if you always wanna have your way, if you always wanna be heard, you're not gonna be able to be a peacemaker. The peacemaker goes in and is willing to sacrifice like Jesus, to lay your life down, to help the people around you, right? This is the second part of that greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, I'm gonna go out of my way for people. I'm gonna sacrifice for others. So here's what we would say on this one. I am a kingdom worker. In other words, you have a job within his kingdom to help others, to be a neighbor, to be loving. It's not just showing love. Now you're sacrificing for the good of somebody else. I am a kingdom worker. The question, how am I making a difference? Right, am I making it worse? Hope not. <laughs> but often we fall in the bystander category. I'm just kind of watching or, man, good job, cheerleader. Man, you're doing great. Don't ask me to do anything. <laughs> the peacemaker says, I want to make a difference. And they'll oftentimes... More times than not, it requires sacrifice. Last one. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. That's, that's in the Bible. That's not me. That's actually in there. She said, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Real quick, let me explain this one. It's the idea of I'm following Jesus no matter what other people say or do, period. Persecution doesn't always hit us, right? It feels like too heavy of a word. Well, you're not really persecuted. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Uh, but he even goes into, well, people that lie about you, say anything. Basically, following Jesus is gonna cause some tensions because our world and his world is very different. And are you saying, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what? Or am I going to try to avoid it and bend? Or am I going to put up a fight to prove I'm right? Jesus is saying, man, no matter what people say or do, be happy about it because your reward is in heaven. So what would we say? I'm a follower of Jesus no matter what. And the question, how am I living a life of gratitude? Every single day. I'm not trying to get back. I'm not trying to give revenge. I'm not even trying to prove a point. I'm trying to live a life of gratitude. I'm a follower of Jesus no matter what. How am I living a life of gratitude? That's what life looks like in the kingdom of heaven. That's what life looks like from Jesus' perspective on what it looks like for us to be a follower. Not all the things to do, but to be a follower of his. Then you can read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, he gives very specifics uh, throughout the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, into chapter 7. Chapter 7, he gives the parable about the wise builder and the foolish builder, and it ends with this, verse 28 out of Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were, say it with me, they were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, unlike their teachers of religious law. 
There's different ways to interpret amazed. It's like, wow, that was amazing. I can't believe that just happened. That's awesome. There's the amazement of like, whoa, I did not see that coming. That's amazing that that just happened. Totally surprised. There's also the amazement of, I can't believe he just said that. That's this amazed. These people, their world just got turned upside down. Wait, you mean I don't have to follow the laws perfectly because I'm not perfect? You mean, you mean God loved us so much he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins instead of us having to work through them? And You mean he gives us these things? I can't believe he just said that. That's the kind of amazed. I can't believe God loves me so much he would do these things for me. I can't believe God is so good and gracious that he's allowing us to, to be like this, where we don't just have to work extra hard and try really hard. It's about our relationship with him. Let me go back to the question or the statements and then the questions we started with. Are you amazed at the love, grace, and goodness of God? Man, I am. The fact that I am poor and he comes and meets me where I'm at, I'm amazed at that. The fact that even in my sin, he gives me comfort instead of judgment and condemnation, I'm amazed by that. The fact that he desires a relationship where we're pursuing one another, I'm amazed at that. Are you amazed at the love and the grace and the goodness of God? Are you amazed at how different life is in his kingdom? It does not look like our world. We are called foreigners in this world. Do you recognize, are you amazed at just how different Jesus calls us to be, not just do, but be? And maybe the most important question for us today, is he describing you? Is he describing me? Not perfectly, of course. Where do we need to be more like him? And would you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to convict you and move you more and more and more into who he's called you to be? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for how you move and how you work, how you speak. Thank you that your focus is on who we are, not just all the things that we try to do. May our relationship with you be that focused on you. You have our attention. You have our heart. Holy Spirit, do what you need to do in us. Speak to us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, move us to become more and more like you as we live in your kingdom. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for who you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.